You know, one of the things the solar eclipse, remember that, reminded us is people will travel to have unique experiences, see things, and be part of events. We all saw how people congregated in areas that had the best view, the best safe view. And they all had to stay somewhere, and many used Airbnb. I want to share something with you I was once told. One of the wisest things you can do when you host an Airbnb is find events in your area and let people in that community know that your place is available for out-of-towners. Many did this with the Eclipse. You can do this as well. Your home could be an Airbnb. Seriously. It doesn't have to be your whole place. I mean, it could be. You'd be surprised what people are looking for when they travel. It's simple and it's really, really smart. You might want to think about it. You could be sitting on a whole new revenue stream. Concerts, sporting events, conferences. People are always on the move. Your home may be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.ca slash host. It's the only bicycle. way I travel. No, I get it. Like, oh, but no, if, do you have I like, like a, I like being on a bus. If I can tour, like, bus really? is your favorite, eh? Yeah, man, I hate buses. Just because I'm, I think again, I'm just accustomed to that, to driving. Yeah. You know, I spent so much of my young, early twenties just driving around North America mm-hmm. in the van, that it just feels more comfortable to me. Just when you thought it would be safe to go back to your favorite podcatcher. Welcome to 32 Thoughts, the podcast presented by the GMC Canyon AT4X. Just Jeff Merrick with you here today on a lovely summer evening. So we might be in full off season mode, but we thought we'd drop a special interview episode as we're kind of in music festival season, right? So we interviewed Dallas Green of City and Color and Alexis on Fire in season two of the podcast. And that conversation was pretty memorable. Since then, the Juno-winning artist has released a pair of records, and we even saw Alexis on Fire drop their fifth album after a 13-year hiatus. Now, ahead of the Stanley Cup playoffs, Elliot and I were invited to Dine Alone Records in downtown Toronto for a lengthy chat with Dallas. He was so generous with his time. Things we talked about, how the pandemic reinvigorated his passion, playing in legendary venues, opening for Rage Against the Machine, and a great flea story as he talks about the Red Hot Chili Peppers, the intersection between athletes and musicians, all under the umbrella of obsession, uh, his writing process, mishaps and touring, and he gets into his feature piece with Ryan O'Reilly at Massey Hall, which is in our show notes. So here you go. I hope you enjoy it as much as we did talking to the man. There's Dallas Green, City and Color, and Alexis on Fire on 32 Thoughts, the podcast. Enjoy. We wrote the whole Alexis on Fire record in that room over there. First of all, Dallas, thanks so much for inviting us here to dine alone. This is a gorgeous, gorgeous spot. What can you tell us about where we are right now? This is a building built on imagination, really. You know, Joel... My longtime manager and uh, owner of Dynalone Records. Gotta say his last name. Joel Carrier. Okay. Yeah, Joel Carrier. Uh, he bought this building as a as a shell years and years ago. I can't even remember the year where he actually acquired it. And you know, we're in we're in a sort of like industrial ish area of Toronto. It yep. wasn't like a burgeoning part of the city really that uh, yet. Yeah, Joel had this vision, right? Like he was following some other things that he had seen in his travels and stuff as like where kind of like a clubhouse vibe where you could house, because we're, we're all internal, right? We have a record label. The management is, is Joel as well. And he there's all these other labels that come off of Dine Alone. And so it was like trying to find a place where you could 
have all of that, but also have a record store, have a venue space, have an office upstairs, have an entertaining space, just like an all-encompassing building built on the imagination that had carried us, you know, from St. Catharines to a point where we could even think of something like this, mm-hmm. you know, that's kind of it. Great spot. Yeah. Became really handy during the pandemic. I would imagine. Mm-hmm. You know what I've always been curious about you? Why do hockey people like you so much? What is it about your music? Because everyone that I talk, I saw on my way to work this morning, I was talking to our assistant program director at the fan. Oh, I just listened to Dallas like last night before I went to bed. Talked to Jeff Jackson at Wasserman, Connor McDavid's agent. Love Dallas. Oh, yeah. wow. I love to meet the guy. I love his music. Seen him live so many times, me and my wife, et cetera. Like everyone in hockey that we talk to about you adores you. Why? Well, I would maybe say that they're a bunch of softies. <laughs> You know, all hockey people are secret softies. You won't see that over the next eight weeks. You know, you know what I mean? And like, I really don't know the answer to it, but um, I know like, for instance, some of the guys that I've become friends with, I can tell the why they like the music is I think they hear something that, that resonates with them in the, in the lyrics, not mm-hmm. just the music, you know? And like, cause I think a lot of these guys are, they're deep thinkers, you know, they don't get a lot of credit for it, but like, in order to play the game that way, play the game at such a high level, you have to be able to maintain a lot of ups and downs, right? And I think my music, I've always used my music as a way to cope with those ups and downs. And I write about that. That's sort of where I like to, I like to write about those uncomfortable, uh, it's like the corners. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? That's what I like to write about. I, yep. like, I like writing about those difficult moments in life and how to get through them. And so maybe that's what it is. I don't know. I, I don't know. You know, I've always had this, like, I've had a lot of conversations with a lot of big, tough, strong dudes who tell me their my music really helps them kind of deal with their emotions and their feelings. I believe it. Is there a song in particular that you think really resonates? No, with but you? like, okay, so Rye, let's take Rye for an example. Mm-hmm. He, I don't and that, know. We're talking about Ryan O'Reilly. Ryan O'Reilly, yeah, sorry. I don't know why this is his jam, but like one of his, like, what he calls a sneaky pump-up song is like a song from my first record that's just like a six and a half minute slow real weepy sad song hmm. you know it's called hello i'm in delaware so there goes my life passing by with every exit sign And that's rise like he puts that on before he's about to go on the ice. You know, I have no idea how that gets you to go out and possibly fight somebody mm-hmm. or like, you know, take huge hits or give them out or, you know, but for some reason that's a song that maybe it's a childhood thing. Cause he listened to that when he was younger, his brother got him into the music. I don't know, but I've had a lot of conversations with these big dudes, like, especially from coming from Alexis and the hardcore scene. Right. And then branching off and like, you know, sort of showing my vulnerability. See, I think that, I'm glad you got there. Cause you I think, think that's, that, I think that's part of it. Yeah. I think because you have that Alexis side to you that it seems like it's okay for me as a hockey player, hockey person, whatever. Right. To feel like this because I can still, you still appeal to the Alexis side of them as well. Sure. Does that yeah. make sense? Like, I, am absolutely. I reaching for something? You no, know, I don't not think there? so. I, I think we, it, we would be for us not to correlate that. Like it, we would just be removing an entire chapter of it all, right? It's like, how can it not be part of it? It's because it's like, I started in this one band that, 
you know, people thought, oh, that's how he is. And then I showed another side of myself and they're like, oh, he can do that too. Right. But it's like the aggressive stuff almost gives credence to the, the vulnerable side. Cause it's like, it shows that I can be angry or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know. <laughs> you know what I mean? But it's yeah. like, we're all men of a certain age. We know how, how we were raised and what era we were raised in. And we're not supposed to talk about, we're not supposed to show vulnerability. Right. So I think part of it is that I think it's just like I give them, you know, agency to feel okay about their emotions. <laughs> Before game two of the Toronto Tampa series, we're going to air a piece where you sat down and did an interview with Ryan O'Reilly at Massey Hall in Toronto. And actually in this beautiful building we're in, there are two removed Massey Hall seats from where the uh, building was first built in 1894. I think stuff like that is really cool. Yeah. But tell us how that came about and tell us about the conversation. Yeah, well, okay. So obviously I've known Rye for a bunch of years now. Um, I met him when he was, somebody had told me that he, there was a kid that played for the Avalanche that liked my music, but I didn't meet him until he was on the Sabres. Mm -hmm. Because my buddy uh, Kyle Quincy had sort of connected us, Mm -hmm. right? Because they, I don't remember if they actually played together in Colorado. In Colorado, I think they would but have they, overlapped. They knew each other from just little town Ontario, right? Like Quince is from Orangeville, I think, mm-hmm. and Rise from Bayfield. It's like, you know. Not far. Yeah. That's, oh, by the way, just to go back to what you're, I think there's a bit of that too. There's a lot of that small townness that you can't escape, mm-hmm. just being from one. Hmm. And I think a lot of these guys that I meet, we just have that easy kinship of like being from somewhere kind of getting away from it, but still wondering if you can hold on to it. You know what I mean? There's just that like, uh, that sort of like-mindedness, I think that exists in it too. But um, with Rye, uh, we just sort of like connected and became just messaging pals, right? And again, I think we were able to talk to each other because um, he liked my music. I think he's a good hockey player, but we live a similar life where you're just doing this thing you you did when you were younger, but it became your life. Mm-hmm. You travel, you kind of got to perform. There's all these similarities that you can just, you don't have to talk about. They're already there, mm-hmm. right? So common ground. But um, a couple of weeks ago, yeah, I got a call asking if I'd be interested in doing a, a little sit down with Rye for a segment for Hockey Night in Canada, which is obviously, yeah, I'm going to say yes to that. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think the fact that it was at Massey and it's in Toronto, obviously, because Rye's now a Leaf, there was this real kind of cool opportunity for us to just talk about our friendship, but also talk about the similarities of, of what we do. And he's a huge music guy and obviously I'm a big sports guy. So I think it'll be, uh, I think it'll be cool. So we got hooked up. One of my good friends, Quince, Quincy, Quincy yeah. Kyle Quincy, he connected us. But we, okay. Can before you start, you, I didn't meet you while you were playing in Colorado, right? Did we meet when I was, you were... I was with Buffalo, Buffalo then. Came to that Niagara show. Yeah. At the winery. Was, yeah, which is yeah. incredible. So like, what, there was maybe not even a thousand people there? Intimate and interactive kind yeah, of thing. which was, yeah, so cool. But then we connected there and then, um, yeah, then we actually really got to hang out. It was in, uh, in Winnipeg, 2019, playoffs. 2019, rise in the playoffs. I think he did pretty well that year. <laughs> but I was on tour with Allison Chains and... The merch guy for Alice Chains was from St. Louis and this just monster blues fan, right? Yeah. And, he, and I was like, oh, my buddy plays on the plays on the blues. And he was like, who? And I was like, oh, Ryan O'Reilly. He's like, Ryan O'Reilly. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> but in my head, I'm thinking, I think Ryan's coming to the show tonight. 
So I'm going to do a little, yeah. you know? <laughs> so we had Ryan up in the dressing room and then uh, we made John like, like there was an emergency and he had to come up to the dressing room and he comes up and he's like, what do you need? And I'm like, Ryan O'Reilly. And he's just like, no! I remember it being so cool for me, obviously just getting hanging with you guys and such, but also seeing you with the Allison Chains guys and how, like talking about them, how I was like, this is what kind of why you got yeah. into music. And honestly, it made, made it a lot easier for me to talk to you. It was so, so special and such. And here there with them, the guys have done so much for you. It was just yeah. kind of cool. It kind of put like... Well, it's, a, it's know, like such... that inspirational relay kind yeah. of thing where it's like you... I feel like we can get caught up. I don't know if you feel this way, but I think we get caught up in what we're doing that we forget the way people will perceive it. Mm-hmm. Maybe before you met me, before you know me, you think, oh, this guy's music means something to me. Or he's mm-hmm. this... You know, you look up to guys who play in bands. But then you meet them and you're like, oh, it's, it's just a person. Yeah. Right. But then you can see me interacting with Jerry Cantrell, who's literally the guy who made me want to play guitar. Yeah. And that's like for me to be able to see that. That was kind of like it was. It was crazy. Like just looking okay, but back. Do you remember home. this? Funny. Do you remember that night? You your cur- curfew was like nine thirty, and chains went on at nine, and you're like, I'm gonna watch a bit, and I'm like, <laughs> okay. And then it's like nine twenty-five, <laughs> and you're beside. We're beside on the side of the stage watching them, and I'm like, you gotta go, and you're like, maybe I could stay for it. I'm like, you gotta go. <laughs> Like, you gotta go. You're in the Stanley Cup playoffs, you know? But you did go, and you won. When you talked with him, yeah, what was the highlight of your conversation? You know, it was neat seeing Rye open and talking, because I think for him, too, what was nice was it was a different thing, sort of a different way for him to approach a media requirement. Yeah, he doesn't he, have to talk to Jeff, so I no, can but, see how but, he really liked that. But yeah. you understand yeah, that, course, right? It's like, course, I think he felt maybe like just okay to just chat because it was me asking him questions mm-hmm. and vice versa but i think it was cool for him to he was it was nice to see how in awe he was of the building mm-hmm. you know what i mean because mm-hmm. he's seen shows there but you come in and you're it's empty and you're up on stage and you're standing there and it's like even though it's been renovated it's still a pretty daunting place to and then i told him about the first time i played there and mm-hmm. that was a cool little exchange and you want to hear how your voice sounds like selfishly like if i'm in an empty yeah. massey hall standing on stage I'm most curious what my voice sounds like. Oh, yeah, man. And you remember when you were asking me off camera about buildings and like yeah. what makes it sound good? I mean, I think the design of that place is part of it, but I think it, it just does a lot of the work for you. Mm. I remember that was my sentiment when I walked off stage after the first time I sang there. I was so nervous about it because, you know, you're, you're almost stepping out into such history, right? But I remember coming off stage just so relaxed because I realized the building's doing it all for you. <laughs> you know what I mean? You just got to open your mouth. Is Massey Hall your favorite venue? It's up there for sure. Give me a big venue that you love and maybe another small venue you love. Yeah, I mean, Mass, like there's, those are my favorite size venues, like the theaters that are about 2,500. Because mm-hmm. I, I feel like they're big enough to feel grand and feel like this moment, but they're intimate enough where you don't lose anybody in the back, you know? Like I, I'm lucky that I've gotten to play a bunch of the hockey arenas. I've gotten to play, you know, like last summer, Alexis on Fire, we opened for Rage Against the Machine in Quebec mm-hmm. in front of 90,000 people. I mean, you can't quantify that. What does it feel like? It's unimaginable, you know? Like, do you have to calm yourself down? Like, are you almost oh, yeah. going out there? Like, I, like it's like yes. a, sort of like a hockey player playing game one of the playoffs yeah. where they have to Absolutely. tone themselves down. Well, especially because when we're going out there to play, like, we know there's going to be some people that know our band, but we're going on before one of the best live bands ever and one of the biggest rock bands ever and a band who hasn't really played that much. 
and people are rabid for these shows, right? So we had to kind of go out there and we were, you know, we had our chest puff up because we were like, we've got to lay waste to the stage, you know? we got to like prove that we belong in this spot. Yeah. You know, but there's a fine line where you don't want to, especially like you go out and you sing as hard as you can sing on note one, what do you got left for the last note? <laughs> do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. So there was a lot of that, like a lot of us looking at each other like, you know, but then you look at 90,000 people and it's, you don't, yeah, it's hard to explain. Let me ask you about that sensation, looking out there at 90,000 people. I mean, that is just like an absolute mass of humanity. And geez, I'm reaching here. I think it might be Napoleon, but the, I'll get the quote right, which is quantity has a quality all of its own. Yeah. When you're looking at that volume of people and they're all staring at you, I'm always curious what, what happens in between the ears. How do things not change? Like, okay, this is what we plan to do, sure. but then there's this. Yeah, I mean, that's, an, that's a very good question because I think I've struggled with that the whole time I've been doing it, right? Because especially with music and art, there is no right or wrong necessarily. There's no winner or loser. There's no good or bad. There is just perception, you know? And so you never want to go out and, and sort of like play and then use that moment as a barometer for how you're going to change because you did it in that moment, right? It's not like you won 16 games and you're hoisting the cup and going, okay, we're the best this year, right? And you can probably use that against your next contract and all that stuff. With what I do, it's never about anything like that. So I've always had a difficult time balancing, was that a good moment and should I feel good about it? Or should I just stay totally as measured as possible and go like, let's try and do that again the next night. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And not let it try to change this person who I mm -hmm. just wanted to make music and I'm still doing that and I feel good about that. Do you know what I mean? It's an interesting divide for sure. I always look at it as a pr have a process and approach and then see what the moment takes you. Yeah. It's like Jeff and I always laugh about my grandmother's line, like you plan, God laughs, right? Right. Like I'm sure you have a similar approach to every concert to be prepared. Yes. And then there's probably nights you walk up there and say, wow, like this crowd is dead. I better yeah. get them going. Absolutely. And there's other nights like that night with Rage Against the Machine where you're like, we don't have to do anything. Like we're going. Yeah, here. yeah. Yeah, We're absolutely. Going. Like, or you walk out on stage and like note one, something breaks, yeah. <laughs> you know, or, you know, or like I go to plug, hit my guitar and it's just in that second, my amp has decided to not work, mm -hmm. you know, it worked totally fine. We did two hour sound check mm -hmm. and then you get up and, and then you have to audible, right? Two weeks ago, we opened for the Red Hot Chili Peppers at yeah. the, the stadium in Vancouver. Yeah, mm -hmm. That's a crazy experience, right? We get dropped into this one-off show they're doing this world tour. They have all these people opening for them, but I did the opening slot in Vancouver, right? But it's like you're flying in for a one-off show to go stand in a stadium that's got 50,000 people in it. And you're, and you're sort of like huddled into a where you can fit around their production. Mm -hmm. And you just got to be like, okay, let's just be a great band, I guess. Like, <laughs> you know, let's just hope that when we start, we're a good band and, you know, the 2,000 people that maybe know my music are stoked and the other... 48, we hopefully don't bore them mm -hmm. to death. You know what I mean? I assume that did not happen. No, I thought we killed it, yeah, to be honest. I, uh, no doubt. You know, my friend Kenny, who's my longtime guitar tech, he came up to me, he's like, I think we finally found a building that can contain your voice. <laughs> <laughs> which was a, which a great teammate, you know. It was, Pretty massive. It was a nice, uh, that, 
that made me feel good for a minute. I'm curious about that, like the dynamic. Like I love the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Mm-hmm. Uh, I read Anthony Kiedis' book. Just reading his book, I would guess he's a bit of a different dude. And in the the creative business, you probably meet like all kinds. Yeah. Who was maybe the craziest person you opened for? And maybe who was the one who surprised you the most? Or you even worked with, because you've led shows obviously too. Yeah. Well, I, I did have like this beautiful interaction with... Like, I didn't really meet any of the guys in the Chili Peppers, but I feel like the flea interaction I had was perfect. It was, like, all I wanted from uh-huh. a... We, were, we had just finished, and we were kind of leaving our dressing room to kind of go walk down and get, like, a spot to watch them play. And as we were walking, they were getting golf carted to the stage, each in their own golf cart, but flea was on the top of his <laughs> golf cart, like, kind of standing, like, surfing on it. And I was like, okay, well, that's perfect, right? And like, they drove by and they gave us like the clap and we said, thank you. And then I thought that was nice. That's all I needed, right? Mm -hmm. But then later on after the show, I was going into the hotel and as I'm walking in, Flea is walking in at the same time. And we are actually like going through the door at the same time. And I I like, he looks at me, I look at him, I go, Flea. And he goes, hi. I go, I'm Dallas. He goes, hi. I go, I just opened for your band. (laughs) And he goes, Oh yeah, I didn't see it. And I was like, no, that's cool, man. I didn't, you know, I was just telling you. And he goes, and this is it. Like, I'm going to take this to my grave. He looks at me, he goes, gigs, it's what we do. (laughs) (laughs) And and, and that was it. And then off into the night we went and uh, it was like that to me, that was perfect. It was like, I love that. I love that. Pink hair, fluorescent pink hair, uh, you know, he's he's incredible. Lakers sweatpants on gigs. It's what we do. Let me use Flea as a jump off point. Yeah. So one of my favorite um, music documentaries is Let's Get Lost, Chet Baker's story. Mm. Flea's a big fan. And some people might be surprised that this, that Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers grew up and has always been a big fan of Chet Baker. Is there one person that we would be surprised, one band, one performer that you could cite now that people would say, I didn't know that this person or this band was an influence on Dallas Green? I think the one that I would say that, like most people that know me know this by now because I've said it enough, but I think Sade is really? Sade is one of my biggest influences for multiple reasons. Watching my mother listen to Sade when I was younger, like Love Deluxe, that record mm-hmm. with No Ordinary Love and Feel No Pain, and like that record is in my top five. That's like a desert island record for me. It became that as I got older and became obsessed with music and melody and the female voice. And But watching my mother listen to Sade when I was younger and seeing my mom's sort of face, which I would go on to realize this was my mom's like, she's feeling it face. You know, like people have that, like they hear a song and they go, oh, something like that. I have this total just memory burning in my mind of watching my mom listen and, and sort of like, it's a real... As somebody who went on to want to make people react that way w- with music I make, that's like a real moment for me, right, with Sade. But then I just love her music, and I love her vulnerable songwriting, and I love her sense of melody, you know? And if you listen to my music, I think if I point out, like, if you listen to this part, I'm trying to do this Sade thing here. And when I explain it to people, people totally get it. You know, but I don't think that's the first thing you're going to think of when you no. when you listen to me. Wow. I remember when I was in high school, there was a time for about a year where she was in music. She was like the hottest thing that existed. Yeah. I love her career too, by the way. Like she's only made like 
over like what a 30 year career she's only made like five or six full length records mm -hmm. she takes like these 10 year breaks mm -hmm. she goes away her work speaks for itself she's never been this like flamboyant she chose like you know the pop that sort of like biggest thing in the world could have swallowed her up but she got out of it you know so there's like all these things that i i just really respect about her Elliot's heard me tell, tell the story before. And the, the first time he smiled and giggled, we'll see if I get the same thing out of him this time. Uh, I'm always curious about musicians finishing a song mm. and when they end it. Uh, my wife's an artist. She paints, she draws, has wood burning. And one time I asked her, I said, how do you know when it's done? How do you know when to walk away? Like, how do you know when it's finished? And she said to me, and she put on this like, phony, really pretentious voice. And she said, Jeffrey, art is never finished, only abandoned. Yeah, I do, I do love that. <laughs> it's I, great. I think it's really funny. It's I, perfect I though. It. Jeffrey, yeah. comma. Um, you like the performance of it. Yeah, I do. It's great. Yeah. The complete disdain for <laughs> yeah. the question. How dare you ask no, but I, me I, a question? I, how, do you, I, how do you finish? Yeah, I agree with her. Um, I think, especially like for someone like me, who's like, I write the songs, I arrange the songs i produce the records i so i'm in it for m the whole process so it's difficult for me to remove myself from it and say it's over you know and i think if i did have my way i would probably not release anything i do need people to tell me that it's it's done in a way do you know what i'm saying so you need someone to step a in and say editor. yeah because you'll you'll just keep tweaking it mm -hmm. you know again and i think it goes back to that conversation about the difference between you know sports and having the winner and a loser and mm -hmm. with a record it's like it is still just a snapshot of that moment right like as soon as i start playing live the songs change immediately because it's that yeah. version and it's the next version so the record is just a snapshot of this moment in time when you were creating this idea you're only going to create the thing the one time mm -hmm. right so it's like, yeah, how do you find... There is no real end to it. You have to just sort of decipher, this is it. I feel good about it. You know, it's it's almost that. You, you just sort of like, you allow yourself to say it's done. It's that. You have to, sorry, you, you have to allow sure. yourself, right? Listen to the 32 Thoughts podcast ad-free on Amazon Music included with Prime. Let, let, let me circle back to that conversation quickly about, about Ryan O'Reilly. And we're looking for, like, we do a hockey podcast. Right. You're uh, an amazing musician. We're looking for these intersection points. What Jeff is trying to say is there's no reason for you to be talking to either of the two of us. <laughs> like, that's what that's what Jeff. Yeah, but no, I love it. What, though, what right? we're saying is like you're slumming it this afternoon, Dallas. Like you must be like really bored this afternoon to hang out with me and Elliot. But no, these are looking, these are my favorite kind of chats. We're looking for like these these intersection points, okay? Yeah. And sometimes when interviews, like when when people from sports interview musicians, a lot of it seems really forced. And the one thing I was thinking about this on the way over here uh, today and, and saying to myself, you know, the one place where music and sports really intersects is sort of under the umbrella of obsession. Mm. And you don't get to where you're at in hockey. For example, you mentioned Ryan O'Reilly. Yeah. Unless you're obsessed for a long time yeah. about what you do. 
And Dallas, you didn't get to where you are without being obsessed. Yeah. Does that change as you age? I mean, what the old saying, obsession is a young person's game, like blah, blah, blah. But does it change at all? Is the way that you're obsessed about music now different than when you were 20 years younger? I don't think so. You know, I think there's more in my life, so there's less time to obsess just specifically about it. Yep. You know, when I was younger and it and it really took hold of me, it was like that thing that you you would find in like Rye or any of these guys who just said, okay, I, I understand what I have to dedicate myself to, mm-hmm. whether it's going to work or not, you know? And that's sort of what I was when I was a kid. Like it just became this, it became this thing that not only that I was obsessed with, but also that I could, I could see it fit in with the way my personality worked. You know, I, th- I felt like I had some pretty good work ethic already there, whether it was trying to land a 360 flip all day while I was skateboarding on the same <laughs> thing and, you know, or yeah. trying to make the basketball team, even though I was short or trying to figure out a song on guitar when I was young that I couldn't, you know, yeah. all these things of like dedicating your time to something and, and like truly obsessing over something, they were all there. But I don't think it's changed in that same way because I, you know, I, I think about the pandemic and I think the first couple of months, like everybody else, I, I I definitely like leaned into the dread of the unknown and what's going on. But as soon as I had that sort of realization that, oh, I have all this time, I have nothing to do but be obsessed with this thing that I'm completely head over heels in love yeah. with. And I made two records, mm-hmm. you know, like as soon as I realized I, all I had was time to give into the obsession, I was more creative than I've ever been in my entire life. You know, hmm. so I, I I would be mistaken if I said it. I, it's gotten less. I think almost more. A sidebar to that mm-hmm. is practice, right? As a musician, and well, listen for this podcast, we talk about athletes and practice. But as far as a musician goes, I'm obsessed with John Coltrane, and I can't stop listening to John Coltrane. I can't stop reading anything about John Coltrane. And I was reading something a couple of months ago, and someone said the thing about John that made John Coltrane so great is. He practiced like he had no talent. Right. And like, and they, again, like that was, his, first of all, that was his obsession, but he practiced as if he didn't belong there. Yeah. How do you practice? Well, that's part of like going back to asking me, like, um, does success change you or do you, do you feel like you're different after you play these big shows or whatever? No, because I probably would have, I probably would have got off stage pretty stoked about that gig opening uh-huh. for Rage. But I probably five minutes later would have started going through all the things I screwed up or I sang poorly in my own mind. Mm-hmm. So for me, I'm always wanting to be better. So I'm always trying to find new avenues with my voice. I'm always trying to be a better singer. I'm always trying to be better at playing guitar. I know some people who just like they grow up and they, they don't want to write songs on the guitar anymore because it bores them because they've been doing it for so long. And I think to myself, wow, isn't that nice to just be bored of the endless possibilities the guitar has in store for you. You know, I've never been bored by it because I look at it days, I'll pick up the guitar and go, I don't have any idea how to play this thing, you know? And I want to figure out something new and I want to get better at it because now I don't know what that, like where that lies deeply in me, you know, that could be rooted in some other obsessive thing where, you know, never satisfied or we could go, crazy into that whole side of it. But I think there's a responsibility 
to be better. You know what I mean? To want to get better, to practice. If you're given the opportunity to do this thing that you love and that you want to do, there's no end guy. Do you feel like you owe it to someone or something? Yeah, you, you owe it to the, the opportunity that you were given. That's the way I've always treated it. Um, I like that. Because I understand like where I started, which was very, the very bottom. And, you know, we built all this kind of with lots of different groups of people have come and gone, but this simple idea that we could succeed on our own terms, right? But we built it from nothing and it grew into this large thing. So I understand what nothing is, you know? I've toured enough and played for nobody to understand what that feels like so that every time I get to go out and play in front of people, I'm grateful for it. And I feel the responsibility to be good. Every time somebody walks into a room that they've paid, you know, whatever they've paid to come see me, parking and babysitters and all of that, you know, and that is also, that's tied into being, you know, practicing and making sure that you're at the top of your game, you know, at least that's how I've always just done it. Right. It works for me too. Right. Like it, it makes me feel like I'm doing something good. What was your, I've made it moment, the moment that you realized that this was going to be more than a dream and it was actually going to be your profession. There's been some funny moments where I've just kind of realized, okay, my life is different now, mm -hmm. you know, for sure. Like I tell this story a lot, but the day I was walking around the West Edmonton mall because I was there to play a show with Alexis at their, they have a venue there. Yep. It used to be called Reds and it was called Ed's. Now I don't know if it's called Reds again. D's. <laughs> like they keep on yeah, subtracting. Yeah, like exactly, letters. right? Yeah. But I was walking around and you know, they have a skating rink there. Yeah. So I was walking on the second level and I kind of stopped to look at all the people skating and I sort of started to realize that my song, Save Your Scissors from the first city and color record was playing on the radio and all of these young girls were like just figure skating on the ice at the mall to one of my songs from my solo band and I was about to play a show with my other band and I thought okay this is different mm -hmm. you know so save your scissors for someone else's skin my surface is so tough I don't think the blade will dig in save your strength And then I feel like those next five years were really strange for me where it just sort of like both bands were happening and there was a real like, okay, I can do this now. Mm -hmm. You know, there's was it overwhelming. Yeah, man. Of course it was. It's yeah, like, I always wonder like how you handle that. Yeah. I mean, the whole, one, one of the things that, sorry, yeah, one no, of the things that Elliot and I have talked about, the nature of greatness and the nature of talent and the idea that one of the best things I think that creative people, successful people have is, as we said before on the podcast, the talent to manage your own talent, which is its own thing very much. There's been a lot of, you've met them, we've all met really right. talented people that never get to the place that they want to get to because they just can't get their thing together. Man. Yeah, absolutely. Right? So have, how, do you, how do you have the talent to manage your talent? Well, Joel and Trisha were very important and have been very important in this whole thing. Joel Carrier, Trisha Ricciuto, my my managers who I've known since I was 15 years old, you know, having people like that in my life, Christina and my publicist who has been with me the whole time, having people that you trust around you as things are getting crazy is very helpful. I'll say that. 
But I think all of us, the, like the guys in Alexis and stuff, we've these last few years, we've started to kind of realize how weird our life has been, you know, with like, I think for so long we were just doing it and then we weren't. And then I just continued doing it that the odd nature of like starting a screamo band in St. Catharines, Ontario, and then it like becoming popular and Mm -hmm. you're you're on much music when you're like the guys in the band were in high school. Mm -hmm. And then you, you know, I'm 25 years old and I'm, Girls are figure skating to my one song on the radio. You know, you're, you, these things are like, you, you were younger and you thought about these things. And now you're like, you're going through that. Like we were talking about earlier, like you're trying not to let it change you because it's what you wanted. Mm-hmm. And you're, you're just like, I'm just a musician. That's how I look at it. I'm a songwriter. So there was a lot of moments where we could have lost it, you know? And we've, I think we've done a really good job of navigating how crazy the waters have been in this whole 20 year journey that we've been all doing it. But I think the fact that we're all still together and we're all still like succeeding is a testament to how mm-hmm. everybody managed the situation. That's not easy. No, it's not. Because even your best friends or your best partner, there's going to be times you blow up at each other. Yeah. And, and you've really got to love someone to hate someone. Absolutely. Like yeah. we, we, uh, Alexis, we won rock album of the year at the Junos last, last month. And that's a weird sentence to say, you know, because there was a long mm-hmm. time where you just never thought anything like that was possible. But Georgie, our singer, somebody asked him a question like, what's the, what's the secret to the longevity of your band? And George said, it turns out breaking up your band is great for the longevity of your band. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's true. So it's like, I feel like it's, yeah, it's how we've managed all of those times. Mm-hmm. All of those like trouble. What's the biggest fight you guys ever had? I quit group. the band. Huh? You know what I mean? Like, I was, that probably wasn't even our biggest fight, actually. That was just like, okay. We have m- many bigger fights than that. Yeah. I don't think they're good stories for the internet. Oh, I, I actually, that makes me think they're great stories for the internet. They might be, yeah. I have to get some release forms from the guys before I start speaking out of school like that. Did you see the uh, Firefest documentary? Oh, yeah. And did you see, the, what was the other one on Netflix? I've played festivals like that. Yeah, oh, that's, that was my question. What was the other one on Netflix? I'm forgetting the name of it now. It was the big one in the 90s, but. Oh, the Woodstock Woodstock, one. yeah. Oh, like God, the Wood, yeah. yeah. Like, so I want, like, have you ever played anything like that or seen oh, anything yeah. like that? I mean, not to the, not to the Firefest. Yeah. Yeah, uh, extend because yeah. like that was just like you know you flew all those people there <laughs> and Woodstock was obviously like a you know but I've uh, yeah I've, I've played so many different festivals like that around the world and like it's so crazy because if you only knew how poorly run so many of these things were like mm-hmm. last March so when the sort of it was time we're going to go back out on the road we're going to try it Alexis we started our first show after the pandemic was Lollapalooza in Chile. Wow. Fly to Chile and play at Lollapalooza, the big giant festival, right? Yeah. yeah. So it's like, you know, just throw yourselves into the fire and see if it still works, right? But I remember we got to the festival. All of our crew and stuff had gone early to set up. We were playing like mid-afternoon, maybe closer to dinner. So you usually, for it's a big thing like that. You get there, you try to get there an hour before, Maybe. Maybe two hours. Depends on if there's like a band you want to see or because it's what you do, right? It's like you don't, you, you know what a festival's like. You don't necessarily want to go until you're playing. Mm-hmm. But we showed up and the guy who was driving us just, he couldn't, he didn't know where our stage was. He just couldn't oh, find no. it. So we just. Is this your Hello Cleveland Spinal Tap moment? We're, we get into the festival grounds and, you know, like I'm calling our tour manager, Juice. I'm like, Juice, 
where's the stage? And he's like, the guy knows where it is. I'm like, he does not know where it is, <laughs> you know? And he doesn't speak any English and none of us speak Spanish. And so he's going this way. And I can now, I'm like looking out the window and I see the stage and he's going this way, you know, he's going left. And we spend 50 minutes in the van on the festival grounds, just trying to find the stage. Like he's, <laughs> now I'm like, I'm on the phone standing in the van, screaming at our tour manager, juice. He doesn't know where it is, <laughs> you know, and Wade, our, our other guitar player, he's trying to, he's trying to talk to the guy and then the guy's pulling over. He's driving now through the festival crowd in the van. Oh, wow. He's pulling over and he's like asking random strangers, do you know where this stage, where stage is? is? Finally, we just, you know, we get there an hour later and play the show and it's wonderful. Mm -hmm. But like that is touring in a nutshell Yeah, right oh. there. You know, the show is almost the last thing mm -hmm. possible, right? It's all just moments like that. But as far as like crazy riots and things like that, I've thankfully never, I've never been around for all the shows I've played, just, just goofy stuff like that. Yeah. You know. That you can handle. Oh, yeah. That stuff, mm -hmm. it becomes the best part of the story. Mm -hmm. Okay. Criticism. Sure. So I mentioned I was a big John Coltrane fan, huge Frank Zappa fan. Yes. He uh, once said, and he hated critics, like deeply, deeply hated critics. Mm. And he would say, writing about music is like dancing about architecture. Okay. That was, that was one of his big ones. How do you handle criticism? This is something that Elliot and I deal with on a daily basis. Yeah. This is something that athletes, hockey players, everybody deals, especially now in the social media world. Yeah. We all deal with. How do you handle it? Well, I mean, a good way that I deal with this is I don't go on social media. That's very helpful. Mm -hmm. I've never tweeted, which is nice. I like how you say that proudly. That makes you like the smartest man at this table. Yeah, feels good. Yeah. Uh, you know, we have a Twitter, but my, my team does Stop, that. that, handles that. I've never made it about me. Uh, so that's helpful. So I don't, I don't really go on there just to read the good uh, or the bad. But as far as criticism goes, like I've been dealing with it long enough that I understand that it is just, it's just part of it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, you, I've never been under the assumption that I was going to make music that everybody would like, you know, I don't like everything. I'm very opinionated. I'm critical of other things. So of course people would be critical about my own music. So for me, part of it is, uh, if I do find myself, you know, watching something on YouTube or whatever, and then I start venturing into the comments, I do appreciate a real good zinger once in a while mm -hmm. regarding myself. You know, yeah. I think, those ones stand out to me because I just think they're funny. Yeah. Like I do really like like when somebody's like actively mean, <laughs> you know, because I, it's funny. I can think, I can see. I can so see. you could read mean tweets like, you know, that oh, I'd a, love to. Okay. Yeah. I would love to. I think it's like, I just think it's hilarious, mm -hmm. you know, but there's a deeper thing for me with that. Like I, I love a, just a good zinger, but yeah. I also love that. Like, that's what this person's contributing. Mm -hmm. That's funny to me. Um, but as far as like a, a journalist writing something critical about my art or whatever, like I never really pay attention to much of it. But I also like it goes back to that not letting things change you. I don't pay too much attention to the good either. Like I take a compliment and I appreciate it, but I try not to let it sway the way I would then go on and create. You know, I always try to create from a place of let me make something that that appeases this thing in me that that I need that I've always needed since I was a kid, mm -hmm. writing, creating, singing, all of this. Let me make something that I can be proud of 
and then just let it grow wings. That's how it's always been for me. So I appreciate when people, like I said, we won rock album. Yeah, that's beautiful. It's amazing. But this is what I'll end it by saying this. I, I recently heard most deaf or Yasin Bey mm-hmm. say, it is not for me to treat my gift as an achievement. It is what I do with my gift. That is the achievement. And I just thought that was the most beautiful way to put it. Right. So yeah, in this hypercritical world, I just try not to pay attention to any of it. It's, it's great stuff. Smart stuff. Great advice. So I want to ask, what's your dream gig? Like if somebody came up to you, Dallas, and said, you get to do this. You know what I've done? I've done a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Really, for you. I really have. Um, I've been really lucky to have played a lot of the buildings I've, I was wanted to play. You know, I've gotten to meet and play with a lot of these people that I respected when I was younger, like touring with Allison Chains or you know, meeting Ben Harper, who was a big, big one for oh, me when wow, I was younger. Like nice. he's opening for us uh, this summer at Bud Stage, which will be amazing. But like meeting Ben when I, a couple of years ago was really, really big for me. After I met him, I went out and opened for him at Red Rocks mm-hmm. in Colorado, which was a huge like. I opened for him at the Hollywood Bowl in L.A. It's like I've I've gotten to play a bunch of these really beautiful places around the world, and I think a lot of the places I never. I never really thought I would end up in are some of my favorite places too. Just like, you know, weird, random, like the, when we played in Adelaide, Australia for the first time, like I never could have imagined myself being there. And that show is still in my top five, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So I played the Royal Albert Hall in London, England. That's you know, awesome. like I've, I've, I really feel grateful for all of the opportunities I've, I've already uh, had. So I, I think for me, the dream really would just be able to continue to do it. You know, do you, have a, you mentioned Ben Harper a second ago, and right away my brain going. So, what are my favorite live albums? Live at Mars. Yeah, man, it's just fantastic. Um, do you have a favorite or some favorite live albums? Neil's uh, live at Massey Hall. That's phenomenal. Is yeah. like that was a really really important record for me, just because a because it's just him by himself, which I was sort of like when I started making that type of music, just mm-hmm. standing by myself with a guitar, it's hard not to look at Neil as like a North star. Right. Mm. But the listening to the vulnerability of that record where he's like, you know, he's just, he's working on heart of gold. He's working on man needs made and he's, he plays them. You know, he's like, I'm right. I wrote this song about a ranch. I just bought, there's an old man that work and he just sings the old man. Cause he's working on old man. Right at Massey Hall, like that record is. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a great call. And then really uh, another one, just for importance of being younger, like list, sitting and listening to the Woodstock live, like the record with my dad being young and him like, you know, showing me Santana's performance or 10 years after and like, yeah. and then watching the concert. That was big. Mm-hmm. Just seeing like being young and seeing like live music on such a scale. It was like impactful. Let me ask you about the latest. Yeah. Uh, tell us about the latest album. Yeah, it's called uh, The Love Still Held Me Near. Most of the songs are sort of rooted in uh, grief and experiencing a lot of loss in my life in that period. But for me, I think it's more about the journey through that. And it's a, I think it's a hopeful, a hopeful record. How long did it take you to write this one? We need hope. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's where I was sort of ending up. You know, it was like, instead of leaning into the, the grieving side of it, I thought I'd try to lean into how do you get through that? You know? Um, 
But so for me, it was, uh, I started writing the songs in February of 2020. That was probably when I wrote the first bit of the first song. And mm-hmm. by, I guess I was done by December that year, you know, but like I said, I kind of went through that crazy creative period where we wrote all the Alexis songs and I wrote all these songs in like a seven month stretch of just sort of explosive creativity. The, the, the reason I'm always curious about, you know, how long it takes someone to, to create something like that is, and maybe I'm, I'm sure you've, you've found this, sometimes you feel like a song doesn't fit with this album, but yeah. you know what, one that you wrote 10 years ago yeah, there's might, a, you know, with a fresh coat of paint. Yeah, there's a, song, here. there's a song on this record called The Water Is Coming that I wrote originally for my last record. And it was the version that I recorded for my last record and didn't put on is very dark. And very, very hopeless. Mm-hmm. And I was writing it from a very, very negative perspective. And I think I left it off the record because of that. And then as I was kind of unearthing some older ideas just to see what was in there, because that's always fun to kind of mm-hmm. mine a few of, you know, Nick Cave, uh, he doesn't like doing that. He, he, he warns against going back to the, the old stuff. But I like mining it. I always think there's something, you know, you left it off for a reason, but it was it was created for a reason, you know? Mm-hmm. But so I went back and took this song and, and, and literally rewrote it from a hopeful perspective. And it became this, like, one of my favorite songs on the record because it needed exactly what you said. It just needed a new coat of paint. Knocked down a few walls in it, too, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, open it up a little bit. <laughs> Let some a light true in. true renovation. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. This may sound like a weird one, and I don't even maybe know what I'm asking, but I'm going to throw this out there anyway. You know, we're in this wonderful spot, and I'm looking at your new album, and I'm thinking about things that I love listening to on vinyl. Yeah. More than, like, when I listen to, like, Robert Johnson, I wanted to hear Robert Johnson on vinyl, right? Where do you think your music fits best? I would say vinyl. Yeah, that would be my answer. Why, vi- any, why vinyl? Would any musician say otherwise? Yeah, I think so. I think okay. you have to be from a certain, like, because I, I don't think, like, I also don't think that's the right answer. You know what I mean? It's just my right answer. Yeah. Because there's kids that are making insane, beautiful music on iPhones to be listened to on an iPhone. <laughs> that's how they create and that's how yeah. they, but I think just for me, coming from the era of, something physical to go along with the song where you're like, you know, you create the record to be put on and sat and listened to. I mean, that's the dream of an artist is you, you want to make a record. You want to put all this time and effort into a record and have somebody sit and spend some time with it. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously streaming and all of that has like thrown that completely out the window, but at the same time, vinyl's never been more popular than it is right now. It's great. And I think there are a lot of people who, used to love it, who are realizing that they could still love it now. And then I think there's a lot of young kids who are like, I want to hold something. And see artwork. And I want to open up the jacket and I want to yeah. put the, and I want to flip the record and I want to have it be tactile, like a tactile experience to go along. And it's not just like in the ether. So that would be my answer. 
I love it. This has been a lot of fun. Fantastic. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thanks, for coming. thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you for coming to our, our spot. It's beautiful. Thanks. Really hope you enjoyed that. The full video of our conversation with Dallas can be found on Sportsnet's YouTube channel. Alexis on Fire is currently on tour and City and Color hits the road in August. Their tour dates can be found in our show notes. We'll leave you with a track from City and Color's latest record, The Love Still Held Me Near. By the way, I've listened to Meant to Be probably at least once, maybe twice, most days, three times every single day this summer that's how great this song is that's how great this album is this album is deeply emotional it is vulnerable it is beautifully written and here's city and color with a little mercy on 32 thoughts the podcast enjoy the rest of your summer we mean it this time the day begins to blow i know this bruised life Within the beat still stirs And I am fit to guide And now I'm weeping towards the sky For what seeps back into the earth How we not supposed to love In fear of losing some You know, one of the things the solar eclipse, remember that, reminded us is people will travel to have unique experiences, see things, and be part of events. We all saw how people congregated in areas that had the best view, the best safe view. And they all had to stay somewhere, and many used Airbnb. I want to share something with you I was once told. One of the wisest things you can do when you host an Airbnb is find events in your area and let people in that community know that your place is available for out-of-towners. Many did this with the Eclipse. You can do this as well. Your home could be an Airbnb. Seriously. It doesn't have to be your whole place. I mean, it could be. You'd be surprised what people are looking for when they travel. It's simple and it's really, really smart. You might want to think about it. You could be sitting on a whole new revenue stream. Concerts, sporting events, conferences... People are always on the move. Your home may be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.ca slash host.